a song of ascents of David. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. I want you to think of time when you were much younger, when your parents used to wake you up on Sunday mornings and say to you, let's go to church. If you were like me, uh, you would reluctantly roll out of bed with a frown on your face. You would put on your nice khakis and your polo that you hated to wear, and you would drag your feet into the car, and then you'd drag it into the church, and you would wait for the misery of it all to come to an end. Or perhaps you weren't like me, and you actually look forward to going to church, and perhaps you were the ones dragging your parents, saying to them that you had to get there a little bit early to memorize the Bible verse for that Sunday. Well, now I want you to think uh, about how you feel when someone says that to you now. Let's go to church. Of course, there's no one to wake you up anymore except for your alarm or your children. And some days it seems like it's only by the sheer force of will that you manage to actually come to this building. And perhaps some of you are sitting there right now, especially in an evening service, wondering what on earth am I doing here right now? Well, as Simon read for us in Psalm 122, this was not an issue for the people of Israel, at least not in this psalm, which presents for us an ideal picture of Israel, an ideal picture of Jerusalem, the temple, and the worship of the Lord. In fact, far from it, going to the house of the Lord was a source of immense celebration and joy, and this evening we're going to see why that was the case. Psalm 122 itself is fairly straightforward. If your Bibles are formatted like mine, then you'll be able to tell that this poem or this song is composed of three stanzas. Take a look. The first stanza includes verses 1 and 2, and in it the Psalter rejoices at the prospect of going up to the house of the Lord. The second stanza includes, includes verses 3, 4, and 5, And in it, the Psalter once again rejoices, but this time he celebrates the significance of the city of Jerusalem itself. And last but not least, the third stanza is composed of the last four verses, verses 6 through 9. And in that final stanza, the Psalter seeks after the peace of Jerusalem in fervent prayer. And so those will be the three points for this evening's sermon. Number one, journey to Jerusalem. Number two, the city of Jerusalem. And number three, prayer for Jerusalem. And let me draw your attention to one more detail before we get into the text here. You may have noticed, but in verse 1, the Psalter says, Let us go to the house of the Lord. And then in the very last verse, the Psalter again mentions the house of the Lord our God. And so references to this house forms an inclusio, or it brackets the entire psalm. And that helps us see the main point of this chapter, which is simply a celebration of the house of the Lord, the dwelling place of God. Having introduced our passage, let me pray one more time for us, and then we'll jump into the text. Let's pray. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are not just God over Headley Park Church, but you are also God over Briarwood Presbyterian Church, and indeed you are God over all of the universe. And we thank you so much that we don't just belong to our respective local bodies of Christ, but we are part of the universal church. And perhaps it's especially when we can see that reality that we're able to appreciate and understand the breadth of your sovereignty, of your mighty, of your power, and of your greatness. We thank you that we gather here this evening to take a look at this word. We thank you that you've provided your word as a lamp unto our feet. We ask that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in this law. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get to the first stanza, let me say something about the header or the title of this psalm, which Simon actually read, A Song of Ascents of David. You would do well to take note of those headers when you read through the psalms on your own because they are not something that a later editor added to the text, like the chapter and verse numberings, but they are actually part of the original manuscripts. If you have your Bibles, you will observe that that same header is placed above each of the psalms that are between Psalm 120 and Psalm 134. You can just flip through the pages and check a song of ascents, that same header. Indeed, our passage is part of a larger section that is tied together with this theme of ascent. And if you're wondering what the significance of that might be, let me explain. The Hebrew verb, therefore, to ascend or to go up is often used to refer to pilgrimage. And so with that in mind, this is how one scholar explains it. I quote, This collection of psalms functioned as a kind of handbook or manual for pilgrims, a series of prayers and songs, or perhaps texts for devotional meditation. So you can imagine the people of Israel taking out this short reference book or handbook, if you will, composed of Psalms 120 through 134, and using them in their prayers, and their songs, in their devotions, as they journeyed to Jerusalem. Well, out of this collection, Psalm 122, our passage, is most explicitly related to this theme of pilgrimage. In fact, you will have noticed that the entire psalm is written from the perspective of someone who is not a resident of Jerusalem, but someone who has gone up to the city. In other words, it's written by a pilgrim. Jerusalem, by the way, sat on top of a rather steep hill, and so regardless of the direction from which you were coming, every visitor would always have to go up to Jerusalem. Well, let's take a look at that, and then at the first stanza, and our first point, journey to Jerusalem, verse 1. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Our psalm begins with the pilgrim recalling the moment when he was invited to go to the house of the Lord, similar to the way in which I invited you to recall your childhood just a moment ago. As he looks back to that moment, he remembers, I rejoiced with those who said to me. For the pilgrim, it is a moment that is distinctly colored by joy and gladness. When I was younger, one of the things that really got me excited was when my parents told me that we were about to go on furlough or sabbatical. For missionaries, for my family at least, once every four years, we would go to 
sabbatical either in the States, in America, or actually here in England. And a large part of what got me excited wasn't so much the destination, but it was the journey. There's something about international airport terminals, at least, that I think is quite magical. It's almost like a gateway to another world. And so especially during the weeks leading up to our trip, I would always wake up while I was sleeping because I got so excited. I would be dreaming that I would be stepping onto the plane, and just as I was stepping on, I would wake up. The excitement would wake me up. It was kind of like the opposite of a nightmare. Well, what sticks out in the mind of this pilgrim is that day when they said to him, let us go to the house of the Lord. Can you imagine the invitation to go up and worship God being the one memory that you cherish with all of your heart? Now that may be difficult for you to sympathize with. It might even be a little bit confusing, but it's helpful if we understand the background of this verse. Keep in mind, that not everyone in Israel, such as the pilgrim of this psalm, lived in Jerusalem. Also keep in mind that back then there were no highways, no cars, certainly no planes, and so even if you lived only 10 miles outside of the city, that would have been quite the hike. So the people who were living in the towns and villages all the way on the other side of Canaan, the other side of Israel, they would have never gone up to Jerusalem if it wasn't for the fact that God had instituted three festivals during the year in which every Israelite was encouraged and indeed commanded to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 16 reads, Three times a year all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. Three festivals throughout the year may not sound like a big deal to us today, but I think it would be difficult for me to overstate just how huge of an undertaking it would have been for these Israelites to put everything in order back home in order to make this trip. Who's going to take care of all the livestock while we're gone? What if there's a bad storm that causes a flood? Or what if a bunch of raiders plunder our village in our absence? See, going all the way to Jerusalem and spending at least a week there was no light affair. If we take a passage such as 1 Samuel chapter 1 as an example, that's the story of Elkanah and Hannah, then we see that not even Samuel's parents, the prophet Samuel, not even his parents actually made the pilgrimage all three times a year. They only went up once a year. That was their practice, we're told. And if that was the practice of Samuel's family, who seemed to be more faithful, more righteous than the average Jew, then I don't think it's a stretch to say that during a year, some Israelites wouldn't have even gone up once. Maybe they wanted to, but they felt like they just couldn't. And maybe now you can begin to understand and appreciate the elated joy of this pilgrim. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. The phrase, let us go up, that phrase is a standard call formula in the Old Testament. It's used whenever the Israelites get their act together and determine to do something. And don't miss the first person plural pronoun here. The phrase, 
underscores the fact that pilgrimage was a communal affair. Let us go. Well, who is the us? Verse 4 gives us the answer. It's the tribes. And so we're not to think that this is one individual or even one family going up to Jerusalem. This is an entire clan. It's a whole village. And they've determined to go up to the house of the Lord to worship. I mean, this is a remarkable scene. Finally, finally, we haven't been able to make it for some time. The harvest kept on getting pushed back. The young couples kept on getting married. The mothers kept on having babies. The elderly kept on dying. And excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse continuously delayed the pilgrimage. But finally, the elders have gotten together. And they've said, you know, it's really now or never. We need to do whatever we need to do in order to make this happen. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to the big city and worship in the magnificent house of the Lord. Can you get a sense of how momentous this occasion was? This was the event of the year. So no wonder this pilgrim, when he thinks back to that moment, recalls that his heart was glad. Well, that joy is carried through into verse 2. Notice that the tense changes there. The pilgrim is no longer recollecting the past. Rather, he is now presently standing in Jerusalem. His time in the city has evidently come to an end. So now before returning home, he leads his tribe in reflecting upon the experience that they've just had. And it's almost in disbelief that he cries out, Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. And perhaps that's how some of my team members feel right now. Our Feet are standing in Headley Park. He still can't believe it. They were actually able to worship in the temple. And this is now the setting for the rest of the psalm. It is an ode to Jerusalem. An ode before they head back home. That's point number one, journey to Jerusalem. Now take a look with me at the second stanza, which is about the city of Jerusalem. Verse 3, follow along. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the, the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. In this second stanza, the pilgrim celebrates the significance of the city of Jerusalem itself. And there are three characteristics that stand out in his mind. First, Jerusalem is a city of security, Second, it is a city of gathering. And third, it is a city of justice. These three characteristics give us a glimpse into the heart of the pilgrim. It explains why going up to Jerusalem was such a joyous affair for him. We start with the first, verse 3 again. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. Once again, I think we need to place ourselves in the shoes of the pilgrim in order to fully appreciate what he's saying here. Suppose that you were from the countryside. You've spent most of your life in a small town or village. And as you approach Jerusalem, you can see it off in the distance, because remember, it's sitting on top of a hill. And it may look small at first, but then as you get closer and closer, until finally you've reached its gates, you're staring up at the high walls and the citadels of the city. And as that gate opens up before you, and you get your first glimpse inside the city of David, your breath is sucked out of your lungs. 
as you marvel at this spectacular city. Here's how John Golden Gay, Old Testament scholar, scholar, describes it. I quote, One can imagine a pilgrim being struck by the city's bounded compactness with the houses all built closely together, partly as imposed by the physical constraints within which the older parts of the city were constructed because it was almost surrounded by canyons. When I read that description, the first thing that I thought of was that scene from The Return of the King, the third movie in the Lord of the Ring trilogy. If you've seen the movie, you might remember this scene. Gandalf, the wizard, is riding on his horse with Pippin, one of the hobbits, in order to deliver a message to the steward of Gondor. And as they come out of the forest, they ride up a small hill, and we see a city off in the distance. And Gandalf turns to Pippin and he says, Minas Tirith, the city of kings. And Pippin, this hobbit from the countryside of the Shire, stares with this dumb and awestruck face. He's never seen a city of this scale and magnitude before. And then in the next scene, we see the camera following Gandalf and Pippin circling around to the top of the city. Then as the camera pans out for the first time in the trilogy, the audience is now given a glimpse of the white city. And if you're watching that on the big screen, you are right there with Pippin because that city is magnificent. And then finally, when they reach the top, they arrive at this beautiful garden courtyard and towering before them, is the king's palace. I think the pilgrim might have had a similar experience. Only for him and his tribe, as they made their way up the narrow streets of Jerusalem, when they reached the top, not only was there the king's palace, but next to it stood the temple of the Lord. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. See, that description conjures up for us the impression of Jerusalem as a secure place. It evokes the idea and the feeling of safety, a place that people can go to in times of trouble and oppression, because not only is the city firmly bound together, but it is Yahweh, it is God, who securely holds it in His arms. So first, Jerusalem is a city of security. Second, Jerusalem is a city of gathering. Verse 4, That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. As if the city itself wasn't compact enough in its architecture and its geographical constrictions, during the three major festivals of the year, when all the tribes of Israel came to Jerusalem, you can imagine it would have been overflowing with hundreds and thousands of people and animals, every inn in the city, not just filled, but overbooked, and not just the inns, but even the personal homes. And so second, Jerusalem finds its significance in that it is the place where this tremendous gathering occurs. It's a place of fellowship. It's a place of reunion. It's a place of friendship and brotherhood, as verse 8 explicitly says. Not only is the city itself firmly bound together, but it also has the effect of bringing and binding the tribes together. It draws them in. It reminds them, as verse 4 says, that they are the tribes of the Lord. It is in the Lord that they find their communion and union. And if you think about it, doesn't the church have a similar significance? 
Just as the tribes were reminded that they weren't disparate tribes, we're reminded every time we come to church that we belong to the larger body of Christ. And perhaps we'll feel, we will feel that especially tonight and throughout this week as our team all the way from Birmingham, Alabama, gathers with the ch church family here in Bristol, England, all because of what? Because we belong to the same family of God. The statute that's mentioned in that verse is referring to those three festivals we mentioned earlier. The Lord had decreed for Israel that the tribes go up three times a year. And you see, it was this very decree that allowed for this gathering to take place in the first place. So on the one hand, the pilgrimage was a duty. Going up to the house of God was an act of obedience to the law. On the other hand, the pilgrimage was also a delight. So duty and delight. If you have the eyes to see, you'll realize that's the case for all of God's commandments. Not least of which is the fourth commandment to keep the Lord's day holy. Related to that, what the author of Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. God's law is both a decree and a delight. He commands us to obey. But if you're patient enough, you will see that that obedience leads to joy. To happiness. And the third significance of the city of Jerusalem is that it was a place of justice. Verse 5. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Bear in mind that in ancient Israel, the king was both the monarch as well as the judge, and the throne was also the highest court of appeal. We see this most clearly illustrated in the reign of King Solomon, who famously asks God for wisdom so that he might govern the people and discern between right and wrong. Those are his words in 1 Kings chapter 3. Then at the end of that same chapter, we read that the people saw that Solomon had wisdom from God to administer justice. One of the primary functions of the king was to enforce justice and equity and peace. This was especially significant for the tribes who had come from the far corners of the kingdom because, you see, there were some conflicts and disputes that just couldn't be settled in the local courts, and they remained unsettled throughout the year until they were brought to the royal court where at last a decisive ruling could be made. It's easy for us to underestimate the practical impact of this judgment, but think about it like this. If there were two families within a village that had a dispute with each other, that could potentially disrupt the peace of the entire community. I mean, that's true of the church as well. You've got two prominent families arguing and bickering with one another, and that will disrupt the unity and the peace of the whole church. And so this rare opportunity to stand before the thrones of judgment had the potential of restoring order and balance, not just for these two families, but for the life of the entire tribe. So we can imagine two people go up to Jerusalem as enemies. But they come back reconciled. They come back as brothers. And so I love how one theologian puts it. He says, pilgrimage is a journey in search of peace. And where else would the people of God find that peace other than the city called Yerushalayim, literally the city of peace? So in summary, there are three characteristics of the city of Jerusalem that this pilgrim celebrates. It's security, it's gathering, 
and it's justice that leads to peace. Now let me help you apply this for us today and for this upcoming week. When we get to the New Testament, what we see is that the church now fulfills and effectively functions as the temple of the Lord. We are the house of the Lord, if you will. We don't have time to dwell on that point, so just to give you a few references, Ephesians 2.22 says, You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2.5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. One more, 2 Corinthians 6.16, We are the temple of the living God. All of that to say the church is the house of God. And this is what that means. It means that corporately, collectively, communally, Headley Park Church has a responsibility to make this house of God a place that encourages and even irresistibly produces joy and gladness in the hearts of those who come. Based upon what, you ask? Well, at the very least, based upon those three characteristics that the pilgrim celebrates. Security, gathering, justice. Now let me offer you some reflections on the theological significance of your vacation Bible school of adventurers. One of the reasons why not just Headley Park, but Briarwood and any other church must be engaged with the community is in order to have a witness or testimony. To put that differently, in order to develop and build a certain reputation, whether we like it or not, our church has a reputation. And it's constantly evolving based upon the things that we do and even don't do. And so when we think about what we ought to do, when we ask ourselves that question, it is our theology that should inform our decision. Well, sticking with Psalm 122, one of the questions we must then ask is, is doing this event, is doing VBS, is that going to invest Headley Park with the theological significance of reflecting God's security, gathering, and justice? And I think adventurers can very well do that, even if in small ways, for example, taking all the necessary steps, such as background checks and safeguarding, to make sure that we're all trained to protect the children, then actually feeding them, caring for them, teaching them. All of that conveys the message that this is a place of what? Security. A place where both children and parents can feel safe. Furthermore, I'd imagine that many of the children who will be here this coming week, 123, wouldn't have the opportunity to interact with each other if it wasn't for adventurers. So in that too, Headley Park becomes a place of gathering. And all the more so when the purpose of that gathering is not just friendship, but to share the gospel and to praise God, to worship God. And what about justice? Well, I think especially in what we teach these children, and how we counsel them, and what we model, we help them reconcile with each other, Sometimes reconcile with their parents, reconcile with the church, and most importantly, to be reconciled with God in Christ Jesus. I mean, what is that other than establishing justice? And slowly but surely, 
year after year, as Headley Park continues to engage in this ministry, as Headley Park continues to pursue the well-being of greater Bristol, what is happening? Headley Park is becoming a church of which people can say, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, let's quickly take a look at the final stanza. Right before departing, the pilgrim now directly addresses the city herself and prays for her peace. So journey to Jerusalem, number two, city of Jerusalem, and number three, prayer for Jerusalem, verse six. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. That word peace appears three times in those four verses. It's the major theme of the final stanza. And as many of you know, the word for peace in Hebrew is shalom. Shalom is a word that actually has quite a broad range of meaning. It can mean something as general as completeness or well-being, or it can mean something more specific such as military or political peace. I think the pilgrim here has the full range of that word in mind. He prays both for the peace and security within the walls and citadels of Jerusalem, which seems to imply a type of peace from foreign invasion, but he also prays for the, for the general prosperity of the city at the very end, so for her well-being. And if you notice, there are two reasons why the pilgrim prays for such peace, for the sake of his family and friends and for the sake of the house of the Lord. See, the peace and security of, number one, the people of Israel, and number two, the temple of God, depended upon the peace and security of the city itself. If the walls and citadels collapsed, so would everything else. And so because of everything that Jerusalem stands for, because of the security, because of the gathering, because of the justice that it signifies, this pilgrim intercedes on behalf of the city. And I want you to remember this verse. The next time you are tempted to complain about Headley Park or Briarwood Presbyterian Church, do you find that your church does not live up to this ideal standard? That it doesn't adequately reflect this image of the house of God? Well, don't complain about it. Pray for her. Pray that it will become so. And what I suspect will happen is that as you pray, God will start tugging at your heart and use you for that very purpose and end. Let me conclude with this final thought. Even after all of that, at the end of this sermon, you're still probably thinking to yourself, I don't think I can confess along with this pilgrim that I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I think I can guess what some of you may be thinking. You're excusing yourself, saying, of course, the pilgrim was glad. As was explained, this trip to Jerusalem was a huge affair. It was a momentous occasion. It almost sounds like going on vacation. Of course, that's exciting. But how can you compare that to weekly Sunday services at my local church? Well, in some ways, you're right. It doesn't compare. 
but perhaps not for the same reasons that you think. Because you see, the invitation, let us go to the house of the Lord, is not ultimately talking about church, just as it wasn't ultimately talking about the historical city of David. It's an invitation to go up to the place of which the city of David and of which church is but a type. Ultimately, this is an invitation to go up to the New Jerusalem where there is perfect security, perfect fellowship, perfect justice, and perfect peace. See, your whole life, in a sense, is this pilgrimage. And in that long and often arduous journey, the church, this right now, functions as a kind of pit stop where we're given a glimpse and a taste of where we are headed. The new heavens and the new earth and the new city of Jerusalem. Where in Christ, we will boldly enter into the throne room and the presence of God. And for the time being, we strive to make this temporary resting place a place where we can all say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you don't just invite us to enter into your presence and to worship you, but you command us to do so. And you command us to do so precisely because you know that that is our greatest good and it is what will give us the deepest satisfaction and joy and happiness and fulfillment. We thank you that you don't just command us to worship you, but you are worthy of our every ounce of energy that we pour forth in worship. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would be working in the hearts of each person here as they, week after week, attend Hendley Park Church, both in the mornings and evenings, that you would be working in their hearts so that it may indeed be a joy to worship you with your people, to feel at home here, to find security and peace and justice. Lord, we pray for the 123 children and each and every one of their parents, as they come this week to our church, we ask that you would be working through us, that you would be working through every single member and volunteer and staff by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might be transforming this house into a place where all those children might say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.